nice, exciting passage for us this morning. So this is a great one for kids' Bibles that should definitely be in there. What a scene. Uh, you know, we only have three chapters left, actually, after, uh, after this Sunday. Uh, so that's, that's encouraging. Hopefully, hopefully by the end you feel like, man, I, I really feel like I have a better handle on Revelation. Um, and in fact, we only have next week is the last somewhat thorny passage. If you just read it on its own, it feels very thorny, uh, but hopefully you'll experience it as not, not as such, uh, especially kind of coming with the theme of 17, chapter 17 as well. So we should be uh, all ready to receive the, the kind of what's going on in chapter 20. But uh, really, all the confusing passages are gone. Our passage today is pretty straightforward. It's got nice, it's nice and contained, pretty simple what's going on. Um, I think it, this would be a great passage for Michael Buffer to announce. Do you know who Michael Buffer is? Michael Buffer has made millions of dollars uh, off a five-word phrase. That's right. Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> This is, this, is, this is war going on, right? Uh, verse 11 starts us off uh, with this righteous, he comes, uh, the one riding a horse. In righteousness he judges and makes war. And then verse 19, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who's on the horse. So you have war going on. And first introduced is this corner. Then we have... You might say some of the crowd or the cleanup crew who's going to come in after the war. And then you have this side introduced. And then you actually have the battle uh, in verses 20 and 21. So the, the, it's, it's actually laid out pretty straightforward. Uh, what I want to do first is just examine the passage together. We'll walk through that a little bit so you can feel the contours of the text. And then we'll, we'll do a little bit of a Michael Buffer uh, style. Uh, as if, if I were going to present this passage, that's, that's how I, I would present it. So we'll experience it uh, in that style. And then I will reflect on it. I uh, just try to, try to let's n not leave it just as theory, but just, okay, what do we do with this? Uh, but let's first examine the passage. Uh, once again, just so you can see how it's contained, verse 11 starts off, that then I saw heaven opened. Uh, it's a familiar phrase we've seen throughout the book that's the starting of a new scene. You see it in 4.1, uh, then I saw heaven open, then you see it 11.19, then you see it in 15.5. All of these starting a new scene. So we know we, know we have a new, new scene uh, starting for us. We just finished with that chorus, the tenfold chorus, of after the, the prostitute was destroyed. Uh, they're all responding to that. And now we have this new scene, and it's going to be war. Our first, our first contestant, of course, is Jesus himself. And uh, I, I have it separated. They're, they're kind of all intertwined. He gives us several names of Jesus within the passage. Also gives us the appearance of Jesus, what he looks like, what he sees, as well as uh, his action, what he's coming to do in this war. So uh, I, I'm going to separate it that way, not walk through verse by verse uh, this section, but just kind of separate the names, uh, the appearance, and the action. So let's start with the names. Uh, the first two names were given is in verse 11 there one sitting uh, on the horse. He's called faithful and true. I've already seen this throughout the book. Uh, he's faithful. In particular, he's faithful to uh, complete what he has promised and what he's going to do in the passage. That's what I would understand. Uh, so he's faithful in many ways, but in particular, as he comes to make judge or bring judgment in war. He's faithful and he's true 
to do that. We can trust him to fulfill the judgment that he has promised to bring. That's the first name we're given. The second name we're given is in verse 13. Uh, the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And this is, this is uh, John's... Uh, He's the only author that uses this. He uses it in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, right? Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Um, so Jesus, similar to the, the book of Hebrews, is the very revelation of God in human form, right? Uh, in many times, in many ways, God has spoken to us through his prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, so he's spoken, God speaks through the spoken word, through the prophets and the, the written down in the scriptures, as well as speaks through the revelation of God in, in the incarnation of the Son, the Son taking on flesh. Uh, so that's the, th- the third name, the first one faithful, second true, third name being the word of God. Then we have a fourth name uh, in verse 16, in what was written on him, uh, a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords which again we saw in chapter 17, the king of kings. So there's lots of kings, and there's one that stands over them all. He is the king of kings. Uh, There are many lords, many masters, but one that stands over them all. He is lord of lords. He's the ruler, in other words. So those are the four names we are given. And then obviously we have an interesting statement in verse 12. It says that he's, he's given a name that nobody knows. It's like, well, that's interesting. You just told us four of his names. So we, get, we do know his name. What are you talking about? So that, what I think is probably going on there, uh, if you, you may remember in Exodus uh, when uh, God tells uh, Moses, if you remember, he says, you know, I, I appeared uh, to uh, Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob but they did not know me. I did not reveal myself as Yahweh. And what he's, what he's talking about there, this is the, the covenant name of God, the one who's going to come rescue his people. What the passage is getting at is, I am about to do a work that will reveal my name in a very particular way to the people of Israel right now. Right? So it's not that Yahweh hadn't been used in the Old Testament prior to that point. It's that God's revealing of his name in that particular way was going to be new. God, he was about to reveal the name. So that's probably what's going on here. Uh, there's, he has a name that nobody knows, uh, but it will be revealed in the actions that he's bringing. Uh, that, one other option could be that, uh, j- similar to uh, when Jacob is wrestling with the angel. Remember, he asked for the name, and the angel won't tell him his name. Because in the, in the culture, knowing the name of something, someone meant you had some sort of authority over them. So that could be the other option, that, that not knowing the name of Jesus is demonstrating his authority. I personally go with the former, but either of those, uh, I think, would be uh, suitable uh, interpretation there. So those are the names of Jesus. This is the first character that he's introducing contestant number one, the faithful one, the true one, the word of God, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. What does he look like? We have several different descriptions here. First one is verse 11. He's sitting on a white horse, right? A white horse, we saw this in chapter 6, verse 1, by the the parody of Jesus here. Uh, Riding a white horse in that culture meant uh, typically you're coming back after winning victory. This is victorious. This is the one who conquers. So you might just call it the conquering horse, the one that demonstrates he's, he is the victor. 
And so he's riding this white horse. Second description, uh, verse 13. No, 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 I'm sorry, verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Back from chapter 1, we saw that. The flame of fire being the, the judgment uh, that, that nothing can get away from, nothing is hidden from. He comes with uh, great authority and he sees all things, his eyes blazing like fire. Again, this is apocalyptic literature, right? Remember, uh, Jesus doesn't have eyes that are fire. This is a picture. Uh, he also uh, has a head, uh, many diadems on his head, which we saw the beast and the dragon both had diadems on their heads. One had ten, one had seven, but this one, this one riding the horse, has many diadems. Again, typically throughout the book of Revelation, the beast and the dragon, they're, they're a parody. They're trying to mimic something of the Christ, but they're, they fall so far short. And this, again, showing the demonstration. He is the king of kings, the lord of lords, because the kings are the ones who wear such diadems here. Uh, then you see in verse 13, He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Uh, so that most likely, the blood there is not necessarily his own blood, although some would take it that route, right? The, the blood of the cross. Uh, most likely, this is the blood of his enemies. So he, he kind of shows up already just already coming out of a bloodbath, that he's riding the white horse, he's conquered, and he's covered with the blood of his enemies. They, they've just been decimated, and he's, he's got it. Evidence to prove it, right? He's covered in blood. Then verse 15, the last something that we see, what he appears like is verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which again is from chapter 1. Again, Jesus doesn't have a true sword coming out of his mouth. This is a picture of his words, his words of judgment. And we're told that it's from the sword that he will break down the nations. All right, so that's the names of Jesus. That's what he looks like, our first contestant. And then his actions, we're told, uh, will actually carry out what he looks like and what his names represent. Uh, so verse 11, in righteousness he comes, he judges, and he makes war. This is the one with the sword coming out of his mouth, with the eyes of fire, the righteous and faithful one. He's going to be faithful to bring judgment and to bring war. Uh, verse 14 or I'm sorry, verse 15, he will strike down the nations, again, judgment, and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. This we saw in chapter 12. We also, this comes out of Psalm 2, that the sun, he's going to reign. He's going to he's reign over them with a, a rod of iron. He's going to rule the nations, right? He'll break them down, and then he'll reign over them. Uh, continuing on in verse 15, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, which again comes up from chapter 14. So you notice this whole section is pulling up a lot of the images that came from earlier in the book. We already saw that Jesus is the one that, that uh, treads that wine press. And you remember that's when the, there's about four feet of blood for about 84 miles going out, that he's trampling the, the unbelievers, those who have rejected God. Here he comes to do it, do it uh, to, to his enemies, to tread the wine press to the fury of the wrath of God. All right, so that's our first contestant, his names, uh, the faithful one, what he looks like, what he's going to do. There's also one more character in here, and that's uh, verse 14, the armies of heaven. And they're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. Most often, uh, when you read about the armies of heaven, uh, that is referring to the angelic army. 
uh, the Lord Sabaoth, Lord of the armies, Lord of the heaven, heavenly armies. Uh, most likely here, I, I think that this heavenly army is referring to the saints, the church. Because the passage we just saw last week, if you look at verse 8, the bride, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So it seems that uh, this, this is referring, we also see in chapter 6, remember, the martyrs were given a white robes to wear, as well as 144,000, or the multitude, ha- have these white robes on. Throughout the book, that's, it seems to be that the saints have these fine linen, white robes, pure, uh, after they've come, come out of the earth and they're with the Christ, this is the heavenly army. It's the people of God. All right, so that's contestant number one. Uh, then you have 17 through 18, you have the cleanup crew, this uh, angel standing in the sun. Uh, this is characteristic. We saw the woman standing in the sun in chapter 12. We saw uh, in chapter 18 an angel sh- uh, lighting up the whole earth bright with his glory, remember? So this is very characteristic of one coming from God with a message. And he, he calls for the, you might say, calls for the crowd. Come, we got a great war, a great battle going to happen. Come, we need an audience. Come. And you're not only going to watch this, but you are going to be the cleanup crew. Because what, what birds is he calling? Those who fly directly overhead, which would be, what, something like a vulture or something, right? And what do, what do vultures fly overhead for? For the, the carcass. The, the carcasses, the dead bodies, right? So this is the anticipation. There's, there's going to be a battle, and there's going to be dead bodies everywhere. So call in the cleanup crew. And it's, uh, he particularly tells us who is going to be the carcasses. It's going to be the kings, the captains, the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. All right, so that's contestant one. Here's the cleanup crew that's coming. And then we have our second contestant on the other side of the ring. And this one's very short. I saw the beast, verse 19, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is seated on the horse and against his army. So there we have our contestants on both sides. We have the cleanup crew waiting for the battle, and now we actually get the battle. The bell rings, right? Ding, 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 verse 20. And it's over before it even starts. Look at how it starts. This 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 is how the battle goes. The beast is captured, and with it, the false prophet. It's over. The leaders of the army are gone already. There's the beast, which is uh, in chapter 13, if you remember, there was two beasts. There was beast number one, beast number two. Beasts of the earth, beasts of the sea. Beast of the the sea was the first one. He was very gnarly, the seven heads, ten horns. Remember, he was very nasty. And then the second beast of the earth was like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon, and he was cunning. And remember, he did all these miracles to deceive the nations, if you remember that. He, he even caused fire to come down from heaven to deceive the people into worshiping the beast. And so then later in the book, here, he gets called to be the false prophet. So you have both of these beasts, beast number one and beast number two. Beast number two is now called the false prophet, one who deceives the nations and tricks them. And before you know it, bam, they're taken out and they're thrown into the, the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Uh, and then who do we have left in the war? Who's left on the battlefield except the kings, right? Because we're, to, we're, we're introduced, the beast and 
kings and their armies. So left still on the battlefield is the kings and the armies. So the question is, what's going to happen to them? And there it goes again. Very swift, very quick. Verse 21, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds then come down and they feast. They eat the eyeballs. They eat the tongues. It's just dead bodies everywhere. It's a bloodbath. Even the gorge, it's like the birds are getting fat as you just watch them. They just, just sit there. They can't even contain all the food. So that's the battle. It's, it's quite, uh, quite quick. I would, I would just sum up the pa- passage by saying something like, Jesus will swiftly and righteously conquer the beast and all of his armies. Jesus will swiftly and righteously conquer the beast and all who follow him. All right, so that's a little examination of the passage, right? That's what it's doing. It's, it's quite simple and clear once you see how he lays it out. Uh, there's nothing, uh, nothing tricky about it. Let's experience it a little, yeah? Uh, let's do a little bit of Michael Buffer. Uh, this, is not, this, is, this is meant to be, uh, you know, as you read the scriptures, you're supposed to try to imagine it especially apocalyptic literature. What does it look like to jump into it and experience it? And this is supposed to be read and felt. Uh, so I'm not an actor. Uh, I'm not, I don't pretend to be. I just try to I ask myself the question at times. Like if I were to present this passage on film or as a play, what would I do in order to try to capture what the audience that John wants, to, to capture for the audience what you're supposed to capture? I would probably do a little bit of Michael Buffer style. So here we go. If it doesn't work, we won't do it again. (laughs) All right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. Here we have the War of Wars, the Battle of Battles. Introducing our first contestant, who comes into the battle with an undefeated record. He is wearing a robe splattered with the blood of his enemies. And with the kingly crown, he is riding a a horse of conquest. He's accompanied by the saints of God, his bride, dressed with the best and riding white horses. His eyes are blazing like flames of fire, and a sharp sword comes from his mouth. He has a name that no one knows, but it will soon be demonstrated because he comes in righteousness to judge and make war. He comes to strike down the nations with the sword of his mouth. He comes to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. He comes to rule over the nations with the rod of iron. Ladies and gentlemen, from eternity past, he is called the faithful and true. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here is the word of God. And the... (laughs) I, I found some cool, like, uh, a remix of uh, uh, Mighty Fortress that it, it would have been cool to time it. Ding, 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 da ding, 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 ding. You'd have the music going on, and at which point somebody would step into the ring bright and uh, blazing with glory, and he would try to stir up the crowd, and he'd call for the birds, and I'd have birds flying around, come, come, you are about to feast against and eat all the, the contenders that are coming in. Let's hear the contenders. 
Our challenger today is one of the agents of doom, a pawn of that ancient serpent, the devil. He is hideous to look at and violent in speech and is accompanied by his partner in crime, the smooth talker, the trickster, the deceiver of the nations, the false prophet. And with them is a swarm of kings, a multitude of armies. For centuries, this agent of doom has wreaked havoc on the human race, filling his stomach with the blood of the saints. Ladies and gentlemen, he is the beast. There you go. There you go. And now the officials are ready. The contestants are ready. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready? Let's get ready to rumble. And there we go. All right, then I would cut, I would cut to the announcers. And then the announcers would start. Boy, what do you think, Scotty? This is going to be a good one. We've been waiting for this one. This is the war of wars, the battles of battles. What do you think we're going to see today? Boy, this could be a good one. You know, that beast, he has an incredible record. I mean, he has killed thousands and thousands. He is going to be a tough competitor, but he, of course, is going up against the word of God. This is going to be a tough contest for him. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, here we go, folks. It is time. We are, everything is ready. It is underway. Here we go. The bell is about to ring. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, my. That was quick. Did you see that? Did you see that? It's over. It is over. The Lamb of God. If I would have blinked, I would have missed it. He picked up the beast, and just like a pitcher, he threw him like a fastball right into the lake of fire, and they're gone. Gone forever. Gone forever. Now, all that's left... All that's left are the kings and his armies. What will they do? Maybe they can turn around the battle. Maybe they will do it. Oh, my. That was incredible. One word spoken from the word of his mouth, from the Lamb of God, and they're gone. It's just nothing but corpses, folks. Nothing but corpses. They're all laying dead. They're all out for the count. Oh, and now he's calling for the birds. They're coming down. Oh, they're just getting fat from eating. Oh, the eyeballs. It's gory. Oh, this is disgusting. Scotty has passed out. I cannot believe my eyes. I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's winner is... The Lamb of God and still champion of the world. <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> that's how I would do it. And again, I think, <laughs> again, my point, what I would want people to see. <laughs> is that it is so quick. It'll be like a moment. Jesus will come swiftly and righteously and destroy the beast and all who worship him. So the question is, what do we do with that? How do we reflect on this? So at this point, I have three questions that came to my mind. I thought maybe we could go through. I thought I'd just put them up on the screen so we could remember where we are. One of the questions that came to my mind as I worked on the passage is why, why the string of battle scenes? 
You know, we, we've seen these battle scenes already. We saw it in chapter 17. First, with this one was alluded to, that the beast made war against the Lamb of God. We also saw the battle against the prostitute. We'll see a battle in chapter 20. So the, the battles continue on throughout the book. Why do, why do we keep seeing these battle scenes? Uh, and why this battle in particular? Why is it portrayed this way? Why the goriness of it? Uh, so I... As I pondered that, uh, these were the things that I came up with. Uh, one, I, th I think John uh, is trying to convince us of the certainty of the victory. You know, a lot of times in life, it does not look like Christ is winning or will win. You just start th seeing things happening on screen, on TV, on the news, and you go, how are we ever going to get out of this? How, how is Christ going to overcome this? But these battle scenes are meant to just drill it into our hearts that Jesus will win. He will be victorious. The enemy does not have the authority. As powerful as he seems, just wait until the actual battle happens. Bam! And it'll be done. It's just to drill that into us with certainty. Despite what we see, we know Christ will win. Because that will give us strength to endure uh, through this life. Uh, second, I think it's meant to, to help us see the totality of, of the judgment, the totality of the rule that Jesus brings. If you notice that we've mentioned before, um, all these characters from chapter 12 on are introduced, right? That the dragon is introduced, the Satan is introduced in chapter 12. Chapter 13, both of the beasts are introduced. Uh, then we have Babylon introduced. All of these sort of they deceive the world, they, they wreak havoc on the world, they're the, the agents of doom, the pawns of Satan to bring just a, a mess into the world. And then they're all oft, one by one. Just, just taken a right out of the picture. And it goes in reverse, reverse order as to how they were introduced. And I think it's a way of just, just demonstrating the totality. There's, there's no agent of doom that will come in that will, will not be taken care of. Nobody's getting away. Right? I mean, there's nothing, you know, sometimes you, you might like spill some, some like a, beans or something from the pantry or something falls out and the rice goes everywhere or whatever it is and you get the, out the vacuum and you pick up a lot of it but there's probably some hidden in the corners and the cracks that you couldn't find that's not going to be the case when christ comes everybody's going down who has rejected him and i think these just repeated battle scenes are meant to capture that for us a third i think the severity of it uh this this is a very like dishonorable way to die right just the, the picture, the kings, these royal kings who are supposed to have these really nice funerals are just sort of left out there for the birds to eat. And this happens in the Old Testament. It's a very dishonorable way to die. Um, it, but it's showing like the severity of the judgment coming, the power uh, by which the judgment has come, and just left to die out there, just left to rot. Uh, but it's meant to be shocking, to awaken us. The horror of it. And we have, there's other scenes that are just like, oh, I don't even like to think about that. Like the four feet of blood for 84 miles. It's, it's a gross picture, and it's meant to shock us, to go, whoa. Like, that's true, and that's really going to happen. Not that particular way. Again, we're in a vision. But the judgment itself will be worse than that, right? If you can actually try to picture dead bodies just being eaten by vultures, it's going to be worse than that. If you can picture a lake that burns with sulfur and their smoke goes up forever, never to be tormented, it's going to be worse than you can imagine. And these pictures are meant to shock that in us. Um, 
And last, I, I think it's supposed to demonstrate the simplicity of the judgment. I mean, all these battles that happen, it's just, it's just very quick. They just happen, uh, you know, the, the beast gets released only and is over. The battle just, they just last so short because they have, they're, they're no contest uh, for the Christ. Uh, the second question I had was, if, if all that's true, uh, you know, if, if Jesus really can be victorious so easily, well, then why doesn't he bring victory all the time? Why is life so hard here? Uh, why does it appear the enemy is winning? And uh, if this passage is true, why is he waiting so long for it to, to come and just let these other things happen? I mean, the way I would answer that, is, first I would say, I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know why. It, it, it's clearly true that sometimes Jesus brings great victory on earth. We experience that. And other times he, he, he lets seeming defeat horizontally happen with his people. We don't have complete answers for that, right? We don't know uh, why. Um, but we can know that he's faithful and that he's good and that he's wise Right? So there's some things that we can bank on. We can bank on the fact that uh, part, of the, part of the letting it go is because nobody's going to be left behind. Right? And, oh, I realize, left behind in the series of Revelation. That was, that was an accident because that's a different view anyways. Uh, <laughs> but nobody's going to be left behind. In the sense, there's no sheep that's supposed to be in God's fold that's, that's going to be left behind. Like he, he, will, he will make sure all of them come in. And so we wait patiently because God is patient uh, for that day. Uh, but then we also have to trust that nothing is wasted. Right? None of the pain and suffering that, that God's saints experience in this world are wasted. It's all meant for our good and for God's glory. Right? I mean, that's, that's what Romans 8.28 promises us. It's not meant to be just some cliche idea. All things will work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to purpose. That's true. That's real. And sometimes it can just be simple or simply be helpful to just think through the, the hard things in life that you've experienced, whether they've been greatly dramatic or traumatic uh, or, or relatively, you know, not, not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of it, but just simply ask, like, how has God used that for good? Because many of us would have stories and we can look back and say, yeah, you know, I didn't, even if I didn't like the outcome, I know I can see these ways that God used it for my good and for his honor. Um, and then lastly, what I would say to this question is that it's not, we just need to remember, it's not wrong to ask God these questions, to come to him and say, how, how long, God, how long are you going to let this happen? Right? Jesus cries that from the cross. It's from Psalm 22. God's people ask God those questions, but they don't ask it in an accusatory way, like, you're evil, God. But they come to, we come to God as Father, one who we can trust. You are the faithful and true one. How long are you going to let this happen? I don't get this. I know you're good. I know you're faithful. It doesn't make sense to me, but I'm still submitting myself to you. But it's, it's good and uh, God-honoring to ask these questions, so you don't need to be, feel bad to ask these. Uh, and then my last question is, how can this passage be helpful for us today? Uh, you know, I think sometimes for us, uh, living in our culture, a passage like this can feel very distant, very theoretical. Uh, but as, as we heard a couple weeks ago, uh, you know, many, many Christians in the world, they, 
we need a passage like this. We need to know that evil will be overturned. We, know, we need to know that justice will come. So how can this passage be helpful for us today? Uh, in particular, I was asking, how might we pray this passage? And I want to end with praying um, together. Um, how can we pray this passage? Uh, so I have a couple ways that we could pray to, today this very passage. Uh, just pray scripture back to God. Uh, the first one is to pray for the oppressed. Uh, there, are, there are God's people throughout the world that are uh, in a lot of danger, a lot of pain, uh, in the present time here. And I'm sure there's some here who either in the present time or in the past have experienced uh, very painful, very painful things. Uh, and a passage like this is meant to bring comfort that God's justice will come. It will either come because uh, the oppressor um, repents and Christ takes the punishment or the oppressor will be receiving the judgment. But God's justice will come. And we can pray that uh, the oppressed would find comfort uh, in that, that evil will be eradicated eventually. Uh, second, we can pray for the oppressor uh, that God would open up their eyes, that a passage like this, uh, they would be awakened to see that the judgment of God is coming and they need to repent in turn. I, I've found it encouraging uh, recently just listening to folks that are uh, interacting with Christians in Afghanistan and how they're praying not only for their own safety, not only for their own faithfulness, but also for the oppressors and asking that God would awaken them. Because uh, apparently the, uh, the Taliban comes from, one of the largest, uh, uh, comes from one of the largest unreached people groups in the world. And uh, many, many people around the globe right now are praying that God would awaken uh, folks from within that group and then have them sent back into that unreached people group. Wouldn't that be glorious if God would do that and awaken uh, the oppressor's eyes to the gospel? Uh, also, we can pray for us as a people that a passage like this, uh, Eric had a great point this morning in text group, uh, which is at 845, by the way. We'd love to have you there. Uh, that uh, a great way to pray this passage is to ask God to stir up evangelism from within us. Because if you notice in the passage, you're either you're part of one army. You're either a part of the, the army of the, the one riding the white horse, or you're part of the army of the beast. And our friends that don't know the Lord, our family members that don't know the Lord, this is a very gory picture, and uh, if it's meant to stir us up, that would be a good way for to ask God, God, stir us up to really see that my co-workers that reject you are actually going to see you in this way one day if they continue to reject you. And would you give me courage to open my mouth to speak to them, to warn them, to tell them of the grace of God uh, that can come so they don't receive the judgment of God. It can also, we can pray for us to, to stir up holiness in us. God, keep us in your in your army. Keep us in you so that we don't be, or so we're not deceived by the beast, right? We're not deceived by the false prophet and we wander away. This would also be a good uh, passage to pray that God would give us courage uh, to maybe go into missions. There's many parts of the world that need the gospel and a passage like this uh, can be a good anchor for us, right? Because if God were to call some of us into a place that say is dangerous, you're going to need a passage like this, and we're going to need a passage like this as we pray for you. That, God, something bad could happen to them, but it's worth it to get the gospel out, and you will bring justice in the end. And we will bank on that.
So lastly, what I just want to do is simply pray those things back to the Lord together as a people, and then we'll uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. So let us, let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer uh, and pray this passage back to the Lord. God, we, we thank you for this scripture uh, passage and thank you for the image of the authority of Christ and just how powerful he is, how glorious he is to bring victory. And God, we think of those who have experienced uh, a lot of evil in the world from other people against them. Pray for those who, who among us who either right now are undergoing uh, ill treatment from someone else or from in the past, and this just kind of hangs over them. God, we ask that you would allow this passage to comfort them uh, in a very particular way that uh, just helps them get through the day, helps clear the fog a little bit, to know that your, your justice will come, that you will get rid of all evil one day. Now, we think of our brothers and sisters in North Korea, in Afghanistan, and some of the, just the, the, the hardest places of the world right now, uh, horizontally speaking, physical safety speaking, um, to, to live as one of your people who uh, they're being hunted, uh, they're being threatened, uh, families are being torn apart, uh, children taken uh, to be mistreated. God, we ask that you'd be their source of comfort. Now, you have promised to be with your people, and we ask that they would know your presence today. And we ask, God, that the reality uh, that's really true, that you actually reign over Satan even today, that he's on a leash, would be known to them, that they would feel it in their bones, and they would, they would know that it's worth it to follow you, and that, that they would know that your justice truly is coming, and that they would be able to bank on it, you'd encourage them. And the rest of us, as we hear stories of, of the faith that you're stirring up in them, that we, would, that we would be stirred up, and we would know how to better care for them and serve them and learn from them. We think of uh, the oppressors in the world, those who, who go after your people to try to destroy them. God, we ask that you would awaken them. Awaken them to the truth, uh, whether that be through the courage of one of your people proclaiming the gospel or, or if you would to appear to them in a dream that happens so many times around the world uh, in our day. We ask that you would do that. And we pray for us as a people, God, that a passage like this would truly stir up in us evangelism. I know that I'm weak in this. I know that many of us are. God, we need, we need courage. We need motivation. Would, would a passage like this motivate um, us to, to talk to our friends and neighbors, family members? Uh, God, we love our reputations. We love people liking us. And uh, we just simply sometimes are more concerned about that than the eternal state of our friends. And we ask that this passage would be real to us and we would open our mouths. God, give us courage. Give us faith. Uh, we also ask that it stir up holiness in us, a desire to walk with you, to not be tricked by the world, to not be tricked by the enemy, and going off in the other direction, but following close to you, the one who is faithful and true, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. And we ask God that if you were to call any of us into the mission field, that you would give us courage and a passage like this would give us faith to know it's worth it and to go out into the field. God, we need your grace and we thank you that one day uh, we will experience this passage in full measure and we will worship you then and we worship you now. In the name of Christ, amen. All right, at this time, let's partake of the Lord's Supper. Again, you come in 
the inner part of the aisle, grab the elements and return to the, your seats. Uh, and just a reminder, as we uh, come forward uh, and the music is playing, uh, we in, it's, it's intended that we sing uh, as we gather the elements and go back. Uh, we don't, I mean, we love solos from Kyle, uh, which, you know, but we'll, let's do this corporately together. So let's join him uh, and all together singing as we come and get our elements. Well, to stick with the imagery uh, of the passage, uh, Christian, the reason why your body will not be for the birds, for them to gorge themselves, is because Christ's body was broken on your behalf. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Well, we all know the world is fraught with many dangers. There's many things to distract us. And uh, truth be told, we are not strong enough to make it to the end. We are quickly deceived and we love ourselves too much. But part of the new covenant, the promise, is that God took out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh, gave us the Holy Spirit, and he has promised himself that he will get us to the end where we will sup with him. There's two dinners in chapter 19. There's the dinner of the supper of God that the birds will eat of those who are judged, and there's the great supper of the Lamb, the wedding feast. And we will make it, not because of us, but because of the covenant, because the Lord Jesus in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.